0: Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue our study in this book. Last week week we looked at verses 1 to 9 where Paul teaches us about marriage and the goodness of the marriage bed. Tonight we start again from verse 1 and read through to the end of verse 40. Now that's a lot. Last week I preached 36 minutes on 9 verses. Imagine how long we'll be here to get through 40 verses. No, I won't take 4 minutes per verse and 2 hours and 40 minutes later be done. Uh, But it is a very long passage about singleness and marriage and in it, it all holds together I should say. And that's why we're going to take it all at once. So let let me invite you to hear... God's Word, chapter 7, verses 1 through 40. This is now the Word of God. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her. She should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts uh, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called, is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed or the virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, It is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have lives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then... He who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Amen. This is God's word. May he write in on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, teach us all your holy word. Help us to walk in its way. Guard us from error. Help us to know the good that we have in Jesus. Help us to rest in him and walk with him in the way that you call us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, let me first say, on a passage about marriage, it would be the week I get poison ivy. That may be what you were seeing on my arm, and just get it out there so you don't wonder. And I got it on my ring finger, right in the little nook and cranny where the ring goes. And I haven't worn my ring in days now, which is the first time in almost 20 years I haven't worn my ring for longer than a day. And Paul talks about marriage and separation and divorce. I just want to be clear, sweetheart, I love you. Paul, in this passage, is being a pastor. We see his heart of love for these Corinthians, and we see his heart as well for the Lord. He's a Christian pastor. Sometimes being a pastor is filled with joy. Some of you know my old college ministry intern, Matt Moynihan. I realize some don't. He texted me this week asking for prayer. He was about to be examined for the gospel ministry, and he passed his exam and he's, he's going to be a military chaplain. I mean, Matt is a great heart for the gospel, and it's a joyous thing to, be, to just share life with that brother. I also received a text this week from Heath Warburton, who some of you know, he led music for us in the very early days. Heath uh, called to discuss a possible new mi- music ministry position. He has a heart to serve the Lord. He wanted to kick it around. Where, where does he fit well in the Lord's church? Just good stuff. But also this week, I realized again that it's hard to be a pastor. I had a difficult conversation with a former uh, old RUF student, not known to any of you to my knowledge, a campus ministry student. Um, she's planning her wedding. We'd lost touch, but she called. She asked if I could officiate the wedding this fall, and her fiancé and I had never met, and so we had a couple of phone conversations, actually, a kind of get-to-know-you, um, find out if they really wanted me to do the wedding and if I was really willing to do the wedding. They both, in the midst of it, said they're Christians, but they also both admitted neither are attending worship anywhere or are part of a church community, and they'd begun to live together. And I said some difficult things, things I don't like saying, and I wasn't always sure what to say. I told them I wanted only God's best for them, and I wanted them to be happy and to have a happy marriage, but they weren't interested in repenting, they weren't interested in following God's way with regard to Christian marriage, and I told them it grieved me to hear it, and I was concerned it would lead to a great deal of unhappiness in this life and perhaps in the life to come that's the way the lord's ministry is sometimes it's joyful it's hard dealing with people and relationships and relationships are hard and this is a text about relationships paul's counseling people who are married people who wish they were married people who are married who wish they weren't married people who aren't married but wish they were People who used to be married and know that they should be, but they're not. He's counseling people who are engaged and long to be married, and people who are engaged and wish and hope they can get out of it in some respectful way. He speaks to husbands and wives. He speaks of children, Christians, non-Christians, slaves, free. He's got all these different categories of people he's talking to. And I just want you to see at the start that Paul... In God's word or a God in God's word through Paul has wisdom for all these variety of situations and circumstances. God's word is filled with wisdom for people in a whole mess of kinds of relationships and challenges and difficulties, not just in this text. So there's a lot here we should get on. Let me highlight four big things. Pastor Paul the Apostle reminds them that God wants for us. Let me outline them for you, and then let's walk through them. In big chunks, verses 1 through 16, we see that God wants us to be faithful in our relationships. So Paul talks about marriage and divorce, what that means. In verses 17 through 24, God wants us to have contentment in our circumstances. If you cast your eyes down to, for instance, verse 24, he says, So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. And the third thing is, in verses 25 through 35, God wants us to be devoted to Jesus and his service. Verse 35, he says, I say this for your own benefit. What does he say? To secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's why he's telling them that. And finally, the fourth big thing in verses 36 to 40, we see that God wants us to be happy in life. Verse 39, Paul says, in my judgment, she's happier if she doesn't marry. I think she should take my advice, Paul says. She'd be happier. Happiness is not a bad thing. We'll come back to that. So these four things start with the first one, verses 1 to 16. Paul reminds us that God wants us to be faithful in our relationships. And he begins here with marriage and sexuality as we saw last week. Because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Christians then are to give themselves to one another in marriage, the husband to his wife, the wife to the husband. There's mutuality, there's equality. They are not to deprive one another, verse 5, except by mutual consent. They are called to love one another and to nurture That love. And so that marriage bed is for sharing good feelings and the pleasures of the body that God created to glorify Him in the body, chapter 6. It's also for the blessing of having children, of course, and it's for bonding. Like glue, it holds you together. It's for reaffirmation of the promise I am yours, you are mine. It's also, Paul says, it's a help in fighting sin. The marriage bed was designed by God to help us flee sexual immorality. That was chapter 6. Flee it. How do you flee it? Chapter 7, into the arms of your spouse is what he says. And if you're not married and you're tempted, well then maybe you need to be married, Paul says. He doesn't simply say just be a better Christian or get spirit filled and exercise self-control. And stop lusting. He doesn't say that to them. The Bible elsewhere tells us we should kill lust and sin, of course. But Paul says God has actually given you a helpful positive to fill in where the negative has you walking in a way of sin. So he says, Flee. Flee into the arms of your spouse and help one another walk in obedience. That's God's provision for you. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so we saw, as by way of review from last week, that that Satan hates all this. Satan hates God, hates God's good gifts. He hates righteous satisfaction in the marriage bed, and he's aiming to tear it all apart. And our society is riddled with the evidence of his activity, of course. So Paul warns couples in verse 5 not to deprive one another except by mutual consent and even then only abstain for a limited time, not an extended time. We're in a battle and we need this resources to help fight that battle, Paul says. And the resources, is our spouse. Be there for one another, Paul says. Be there for your spouse. Be generous. Be faithful to one another. And Just as Jesus says to his bride, the church, I am yours and you are mine. And he really makes us his and he really gives himself to us. So let Christian spouses say to one another the same in word and in deed is Paul's point. And so he goes on in verse 10 to pick up new material. He goes on in verse 10 to say Christians must not divorce The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife, he says. That's not God's design for marriage. Paul says, I got this from Jesus when he was on the earth. That's why he says, not I, verse 12, but the Lord. He means, this is something that the Lord said, everybody knows the Lord said this. Jesus said it when he was on the earth. I'm just reiterating what Jesus said. A man should not divorce his wife, and a wife should not divorce her husband. Jesus, in Matthew 19, verse 9, will give one out. That's for marital infidelity, for for, uh, adultery, sexual immorality. But otherwise, you must remain together. And if separated, verse 11, without grounds for divorce, then you must remain single or be reconciled. After all, you're actually still married. Nothing can separate you except sexual morality, and even that doesn't have to separate you. It can be repented of, it can be forgiven, and the marriage can continue. So we should pause there and say this when a Christian marries a Christian, you are to be in it for life. Until death, do you part. Is the promise. There is no escape clause. So think, dear friends, if you're not married yet, think very carefully before you marry. Pray earnestly. Seek the counsel of parents, the blessing of parents, the counsel of trusted friends. Choose wisely because when you say, I do, there's no going back, the Apostle Paul says. Ah, but you say, Well, when a Christian marries a Christian, that may be. But what if I marry a non-Christian? Well, don't. You're forbidden to. I mean, the Bible tells you not to. It's been done. There's a lot of heartache involved and a lot of conflict and tension involved. But it's been done. What what if you've married a non-Christian? Or, I practice this all the time. Or what if, in the, in the case of perhaps of the Corinthians, one of them came to faith in Christ and the other one didn't? And they find themselves married to a non-Christian who doesn't like the gospel. Listen, Paul then says to them, well, first of all, verse 39, you're only to marry the Lord. But now if you are married and one isn't, he still says, be faithful. Listen to the words of Robert Raymond about this. It was the Greco-Roman world, he reminds us. Imagine yourself a new Christian. Perhaps your husband mocks and makes fun of all your religious zeal. He hates your new friends. Perhaps he discourages you from attending Christian worship. Perhaps he forbids it. This is the practical effect of what Paul teaches here. Christian people stuck in deeply unhappy Frustrating marriages. And this is what it means Christian husbands and wives living for years in very unfulfilling marriages, and you don't get to push control, alt, delete, and start over. That's not what marriage is. Would God ever ask His children to do that, to actually suffer in a difficult marriage? Would he ever ask his own son or daughter to live for years in a unhappy marriage? Well, he may very well. He did terrible things with his own beloved, unique son. There was tremendous suffering upon this earth for Jesus as he aimed to love his bride. And even today, he grieves while he loves her. He grieves her sin. Even as he rejoices in her future glory. And so you may have to endure heavy sorrows for Jesus' sake. But be faithful, Paul says to them. Now look, verse 15, if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave the marriage, you have permission to let them go. You're not to grasp at them and force them to remain, Paul says. Don't don't push them out the door. But you you have permission and if the unbeliever leaves he says the christian is not bound i take that with many others to mean that they are then free from the marriage and free to be remarried adultery then as well as desertion on the part of the other spouse become grounds for divorce and remarriage but what are you seeing here friends You're seeing that the heart of a Christian should be like the Lord's own heart. That's what this is about. I am willing to have you and hold you and serve you and love you and be gracious to you. Will you have me? That's what a Christian says to their spouse. And there's tremendous blessing that comes from this. Even in a difficult situation, as we've described, one of the great blessings is that your family is blessed by God through you. Verse 14, amazing, and we don't have time to deal with all of it. Get that little pamphlet. But the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What's he saying? Well, on the one hand, with regard to the non-Christian spouse, Paul is saying this, your being married to them doesn't make you unfit for the Christian community or the worship of God. The fact that you lay in their bed and share the pleasures of it with an unbeliever, a pagan, doesn't make you icky or unrighteous. You've not done a bad thing, Paul says. And they are in some way, we can say, set apart by their relationship with you. The word holy means to be set apart. Paul, I don't think here, along with most who've ever read this text, doesn't undermine the rest of the Bible that says to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus. He's not saying, well, look, you can believe in Jesus and be saved, or, you know, you can marry a non-Christian and get them saved, you know. That's not what he's talking about. But in some way, they are in fact set apart, and they have obviously much more contact with the Christian faith in a much more intimate way by their marriage than they would in any other way. But the children, he says, likewise are blessed. Here he says, even the child of but one believer is holy and not unclean. Again, it's not that the child of a believer is saved, but that they are set apart. God sets them apart and they're special. He put them in a Christian home. They're not pagans and they're not to be treated like pagans. You Christian parents aren't raising pagan children. You're raising Christian children. Yes, you're praying for them. You're teaching them the gospel. You're bringing them to church. You want Jesus to save them and bring it all home to the heart so that it's really real with them. I get that, of course. But you're not raising pagans. They belong... Among us, this text and other passages would teach. Of course they belong in the church. So you have a, you have a woman who's vulnerable, weak, her husband's a Roman soldier, and he just spits at Christ in the church. What should she do? She should bring her kids to church. And should everybody else look at her like, oh, you're married to that that nasty man who put so-and-so to death and yada, yada, yada. And, well, I am. Pray for me. Help me. I need help to love him. And these are our children. And You don't look down your nose at those children. You love those children. You embrace those children. They have the right to the ministry of the word of God. They are heirs of the covenant promises of God. They've got to believe them, but they have the right to receive them more than just as some evangelistic case of some kid off the street that we might go find. And yes, in Christian love, minister the gospel to. Well, of course. But but your children actually have a right to the pastoral oversight of the ministers and the elders. They have a right to be prayed for, and we're not being diligent if we're not praying for them. They have a right to be loved and to be welcomed, to be taught the faith. They have a right if she's destitute because her husband starves her. And Christian charity, of course, says, but also the church should say, she's a sister, we'll feed you. The children have that same right. Not just as an evangelistic enterprise, but because they have been set apart. They are not unclean. They are not icky to the community. They are holy. They are blessed. And so all of this, Paul says, this, to remain faithful, even in very difficult circumstances, is is a great blessing to your family. And I want you to be like the Lord is to you, steadfast, immovable. Um, full of love and faithfulness. That's the first thing. Now the other three much more briefly, but not too brief. Verses 17 through 24, the second thing. God wants us to be content in our circumstances. Only, verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to them and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Paul is saying to us, Be a Christian where you are. Becoming a Christian does not have to turn your world upside down. Don't misunderstand me. It turned your world upside down. I mean, you became a new person, a child of God, a citizen of heaven. I get that. It turned everything upside down, but it does not have to turn your outward life and circumstances upside down. You don't have to throw everything up in the air and just kind of figure out where it might land or walk away from it. You must not, Paul says. But was was someone at the time of his calling circumcised? I realize we don't get that. Paul's talking about Jew and Gentile. Were you circumcised? Don't try to become uncircumcised. And people did that. They didn't want the reputation of being a Jew. Likewise in reverse. Don't do that. If you're a Jew, he says, don't try to become a Gentile. If you're a Gentile, don't try to become a Jew. Don't try to become something you are not. You are already one in Christ with all those people you wish you could be like. And following Christ is what matters, he says. And so he says, your calling, your first calling was to be called into the kingdom and God called you. Now you have a second calling. Your second calling is to live where God planted you and to bloom there and to be who you are. You have an assignment, he says, a, a particular station in life, a place, a vocation, a geography, a something. This is, and he says, that's no accident. God called you into his kingdom and he did it at just the right moment and he had you in just the right place when he did it. So he's saying of primary importance is not your occupation, but your preoccupation, as another put it. Not your role or situation itself. Are you a student? Are you a teacher? Are you a soldier? Are you a Jew? Are you Gentile? That's not most of But rather how you are in that role or situation. The person you are. The person God has made you and called you to be. This is amazing. So he goes on to say, if you are a slave in Christ don 't think it don 't worry and don 't live as if your slavery defined your existence, and the slavery we should say that he 's talking about here is not the kind known in america pre civil War, which was by kidnapping basically and property ownership and it, it was it filled with horrendous things. But the kind of slavery he 's referring to was the ancient Roman practice. Not a a walk in the park, but a third of the people at least were, were slaves. It was much more an economic system than anything. Though, no less, you were the property of another person. Paul is not here commending slavery between humans. But he certainly isn't commending the kind of rebellion that would have gotten these slaves executed... For abandoning that relationship, he's not commending that path. If a slave, he says, can purchase his freedom or get someone to purchase his freedom, go for it, he says. It's better to be free. What he is commending is this there is a way to live truly free, even in slavery. There's a way to live truly free, even in a bad marriage. And that's to find your identity in the freedom Christ purchased for you. As John Piper, I think, helpfully puts it, we should not be driven by fear or despair or wealth or pride. But rather you should be able to say to your position in life, whatever it is, never mind, you are not my life. Because your life is not defined by your circumstances, but by who you are in your circumstances and you are in christ and you can serve christ in your circumstances you can serve him now right where you are and if you're not being faithful where you are it is not because of where you are but because of who you are or aren't as the case may be you can't blame your circumstances for the way you manage them and God has given you the resource to set you free so this means he goes on to say when you get up tomorrow morning and you prepare to engage in what it is you do for a living or for your life you need to pray and ask God to show you how to live out your primary calling in the midst of your secondary calling and some of us need to repent of grumbling and complaining about what it is we do and where we live And we may need to repent of a faithless spirit and a despairing heart that has wrongfully believed that somehow our circumstances are preventing us from honoring God with our life. They're not. The problem is not the circumstance. The problem is us. Be a Christian where you are. Be content with where God has placed you and called you. Now look. Paul is not telling you, JBU seniors, you're not allowed to graduate. You've got to stick around here. I mean, I would love to say that to you because we love you and we'd love for you to stick around. But God's call on your life is to graduate and move on. I get that. In doing so, there will be changes ahead. And if you're single and want to get married, do so, Paul says. And if you become a slave of some company working 60 hours a week and you want to be free, do something else. There's nothing wrong with that. Just don't think that those are the really most important things that make you or break you. What defines you is Jesus. You have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God is not holding out on you. I know you haven't tasted the consummation of them all. And you have them by faith and not by sight in many ways. But you are an heir of Jesus, and these other things may seem humongous, but they are not. And they are not worth to be compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, not everything's going to turn out the way you intended it to, the way you planned for it, the way you might hope for it. But it shall turn out for you the way that the Heavenly Father has willed, and he has willed it for his glory and for your good, and he loves you. Charles Spurgeon tells of a time when he was visiting a poor section of town and he walked by the window of a very poor woman, and he overheard her as she was sitting in a cold apartment in a cold a time of year, and all she had was a little table and a little chair and one coal in the fireplace, and she was in front of a small piece of bread, and Spurgeon heard her as she began to pray and give thanks, say this, all this and Jesus too? Hmm. Paul wants us to have that attitude, to be so supremely confident in belonging to the Lord, and so certain of the great price jesus paid to get us and so amazed that god is for us and with us that we can be content in life circumstances because we are content to be a child of the heavenly father who rules over all that's the second thing the third is he wants you to be devoted to the lord verses 25 through 35 this is his counsel it's not a command Interesting distinction. But Paul does not command singleness, though he commends it. But he says, look, if you get married, life's just going to be harder in some ways. You're going to have anxious worries, anxious cares for your spouse. You're going to have a divided affections and divided attention. You're going to have responsibilities and things you've got to do. And if you're single, you have tremendous freedom. Freedom from those things. Freedom to serve. On the other hand, if you're single, you might be exposed to sexual temptation. And if you're married, God has provided righteous satisfaction. So some of you may need to get married. And you have not sinned, Paul says, a couple of times in this passage. You have not sinned if you get married. And you might prefer to be single, and that's okay too. It's not a question that is one right and one wrong, but but it's a question of which is better and which is best especially in light of the present distress, he calls it, verse 26. And, and we don't know exactly what that is. There's three theories on it. I'm not going to walk you through all that. Paul doesn't lay it out. They just knew what it was. Perhaps it's something like this. What would you tell a young man who lives in North Korea who's just become a Christian and is engaged to be married? And his family's going to find out, and his boss is going to find out, and he's going to be arrested, thrown in prison, tortured, and maybe killed. Should he go ahead and get married and consummate that marriage? Or should he wait, pause, and see what happens in light of the present distress? Or a man serves in the military and he's engaged to be married and he's suddenly called up to go to war. Should he wait and see what happens, not knowing the future? Or should he get married? Paul says you have not sinned if you get married. But you might also prefer to wait. And it might be good. It might be better for you and for the future spouse. That's his third thing. And his purpose in saying all of that is he wants us to be devoted to the Lord. And some of us need to be married so that we can be devoted to the Lord. Because singleness is so distracting and filled with failure and sin. We need to be married to have a helper to help us be devoted to the Lord. And some of us don't need to be married. And we are free to serve Jesus. And the last thing he says... The last thing in verses 36 through 40 is for engaged couples He says let them marry, it's no sin. Um, You have a choice. You can do one thing or you can do the other. Verse 39, and if a widow chooses to marry, he says, the main thing is she's to marry only in the Lord. And Paul's view is that he thinks she'd be happier if she didn't marry. Talking about probably an elderly widow. Later in Timothy, he'll tell young widows go ahead and get married have children and live life but he thinks she'd probably be happier that's his opinion she's free to disagree and to get married in other words she's free to pursue her happiness and that is why i say god wants christians to be happy in life he isn't opposed to you being happy The gospel promises you everlasting happiness. It's the only place you'll get it forever. Sometimes in this life we get a forced taste, an appetizer. And we should enjoy them when we have them. But don't mistake happiness here for happiness there. And don't think that you should be happy at any cost. Paul is not talking about happy in, in doing evil or happy in sin. But happy in Jesus forever and when faced with life's choices, it's not bad to ask what would make you happy. Dark chocolate, much more than white chocolate, makes me happy. I always choose the dark. Living here in Siloam with you makes me happy. And I wish some of my dear friends who are leaving us could stay because it makes me happy to be here with you been a good choice will you be happy married to a non-christian i'm afraid that's very unlikely and if you're a christian do not marry a non-christian will you be happier married to a believer than you will single maybe you have not sinned to choose what makes you happy and to my dear departing friends This is no commencement address, I realize. I hope that whatever you have heard me preach for as long as nearly three years for some of you, it is that God himself is the author of happiness and true happiness is found in Jesus, trusting in Jesus and walking with Jesus and may Jesus grant us all That kind of happiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.